3: Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove, the magazine's deputy editor. I'm joined by our features editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Coming up in this podcast...
4: When I looked at him, I have never come across... I have to say, I've never come across anybody who surprised me quite as much as how much I disliked this cold-hearted, ruthless killer.
3: That was Ian Mortimer on Henry V. The radio series
0: covers the period from the the Tudor mansion to the 1960s bedsit.
3: And that was Amanda Vickery on her 30-part social history series currently running on Radio 4.
5: This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. We'll tell you how to get hold of the copy later.
3: Now, before we go to this month's interviews, here's what you can find in the October issue of the magazine itself.
5: Our cover feature is on Henry V, and we'll be hearing from its author in a moment. And besides that, we've got features on Moctezuma, the Aztec king, and on 4th century BC Greece. We've also got Andrew Marr telling us about his latest TV venture, The Making of Modern Britain, 1900 to 1945.
3: In the issue, you can also find out all about leprosy in the medieval period, about how early modern Britons protected their homes, and where to visit places connected with the English Reformation of the Church.
5: But now to our first interview. Yes, Henry V is one of England's finest kings, the victor of Agincourt and the deliverer of many an inspiring speech. That's if you believe Shakespeare, of course. Medieval historian Ian Mortimer's latest project has been to study every document he could find from a single year, 1415, with a view to finding a new way to understand the past. And what did he learn about Henry V in the course of this? Well, earlier our editor, Dave, spoke to Dr Ian Mortimer and discovered that Henry wasn't quite as pleasant a character as you might have thought.
6: Henry V. um, In my view, from my reading of Shakespeare, he's a dashing young king. How do you see him? Uh, Dashing young king, Mm, he is brave.
4: That is uh, the bit of the the traditional, the the legacy, and that comes across in Shakespeare, and that is true. The man is astoundingly brave, but dashing, flamboyant, charming, he's none of these things. He really is brave because he is so committed to his religious uh, objectives, to his dynastic objectives, and his idea that he can prove himself through war. Um, That's what gives him his courage. It makes him a very bitter man to deal with
6: okay so we've, we've we've prefaced the the feature that you 've done for the magazine as Henry V cruel King. Are we being fair then uh, we're being fair if you look at Henry V as a whole
4: in the year fourteen fifteen there are some examples of his cruelty. Most of his most uh, astonishing acts of cruelty do come from later years when he did have this sort of divine mission and his he put it his, his job was to uh, uh cure people of their their sins through punishing them by death. Uh, So the the, the real cruelty comes in later years. But there are examples in 1415 at the Battle of Agincourt Very famously, he ordered a number of prisoners to be massacred. Now, there are strategic reasons why he did that, but it's a very cruel act considering the rules of chivalry, which everybody expected him to obey. There are other instances. Uh, He's very cruel to uh, one of his friends, Lord Scroop, and various other men who'd actually plotted to hold up the expedition before it sailed. Uh, In charging them with the crime of trying to bring his death about, he was not only lying, he was just trying... basically to kill and get them out of the way uh, uh, so he could get on with his expedition. So there is this element of cruelty which is implicit in the way he does business. He's cruel as an individual. He doesn't like women. He's cruel in the punishments he threatens women with. um, And he's also cruel even to his friends when they get in his way. So I don't think we're being unfair, but I think it's part and parcel of this remarkable character, this very courageous, single-minded character. Cruelty is part of this single-mindedness.
6: Why, then... Do we have this view today of him as as, 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 a, as a as a great king, a man to be admired? Why, why haven't we seen this this cruel side to him before?
4: Well, the propagandists don't mention the cruelty very much. For the people at the time, Henry V is a great king. Now, the the, the model of great kingship in 1415 uh, is very much the model that was established by Edward III and grew over the years. Subsequent kings could not live up to it. Richard II couldn't live up to his grandfather's reputation. Henry IV couldn't live up to that reputation. Henry V comes along. He sets about trying to do what Edward III did, and he does it. He wins a siege. He wins a pitched battle. And because of this... Um, he, he is seen as the deliverer of England from all its woes the last 50 years. And the propagandists aren't just writing propaganda or, or chronicles favoring Henry because he's telling them to. They really do believe this. They do believe that he is divinely inspired and he's been sent to, to boost England in every way possible. In its religious standing, in its political standing, its economic standing. He is to his contemporaries, a great man. And, of course, the wonderful thing about Henry V is that he died young. In, in, in France, no one really saw any decline as they did with Edward III. So there is this legacy that lives on in his brothers as they try and sort of uh, uh, recapture the magic of uh, Henry V's reign.
6: So how, how is it that you have, have managed to see through this propaganda when other historians haven't? What have you done differently to, 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 to find this different side to him? Um, in
4: looking at Henry V I did not want to write a biography of Henry V that was traditional In there are so many of them already and I did not want to write a book about the Battle of Agincourt which was traditional because again there are so many of those already that uh, I would really be not doing anything original so I had this idea when writing about his father Henry IV that one could get a very clear picture of an individual by taking a specific chunk of his life, a single year and examining it day by day now if you do that you automatically break up all the chronicles you automatically break up all the, the propaganda related sources and you examine every piece of evidence in relation to everything else he's doing at that time in great detail so it's almost like a microscope applied to to the man's life uh, people use the word microbiography recently to to describe a sort of single uh, years or two years in a, in a man's life and by doing this you do sort of set aside all the propaganda and of course by looking just at the year 1415 I tend to set aside everything that happened later, everything 1416 onwards. So you're setting aside the, uh, the, 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 the legacy and the propaganda of later years and only looking at events as they happen. And that automatically takes you away from the Henry V, the great king uh, legacy, which started in 1415 and continued to, well, snowballed all the way down the years.
6: Um, And and 14, 15, obviously that's the year of Agincourt, so is there a lot of sources for you to study to to do this microbiography? Well, I thought
4: it was quite manageable. I I told my publisher at the start of things this would be about 110,000 words long. I I, I vastly underestimated what there was. Uh, The book ended up, the first draft was 237,000 words long. Um, So the answer to that has to be yes. Uh, Whether all those uh, sources... Correlate in the way that you can actually build them all into a microbiography is much harder to say yes to uh, without qualification. Uh, we know an awful lot about a king in any year. Um, we don't have any royal household accounts for that year, so if we did have those, we'd be able to make a much larger microbiography. But we also have a lot of sources for other events that are happening um, elsewhere which involve Henry. I mean, the Council of Constance, there are good records for what was happening there. So, with the, the combining not only the sources directly which uh, relate to Henry V, but also the sources which relate to the other activities in which he was trying to get involved and trying to affect the outcomes. Then, then we can make a, 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 a very detailed study of him and his uh, contemporaries.
6: Okay, now he, he was a, he was a great king in, in some respects, wasn't he? In, yeah. in the fact that he you know he won well, he won this famous victory at Agincourt is is, yeah. is, is surely his his greatest triumph. But yeah. but he, he was he was a pretty good king.
4: Well, it depends what you mean by a pretty good king. I mean, the, the, the argument has been put forward by a number of academics down the years who've wanted to sort of play up the Henry V uh, uh, subject or the, or, or the culture of examining his kingship. Um, it's been, the, the, what they've said over the years is that, yes, he was a great lawmaker and, uh, and uh, uh, a, a number of economic reforms. And um, Hold on why are those laws introduced? If you look at the laws he introduced in 1414, they're actually introduced specifically with the idea of going into France and waging an aggressive war. And the statute of truces is uh, there to to make sure that when he has an agreement and with uh, foreign countries and diplomatically isolates France, that he can maintain those agreements. So a lot of his uh, legacy as a lawmaker, for example, is based around his ambitions for war. Now... Agincourt is his great, great achievement, and it is a personal achievement. Very few people wanted to march into the middle of France um, after the Siege of Harfleur, Uh, and very few people could believe that, that there was really going to be a victory at the end of it. So it is a personal decision. He does deserve the credit for it, and it's an extraordinary victory. But a lot of what he'd been good credit for as a king is down to his martial ambitions to prove himself in France through war, to prove that he is divinely favoured. If you look at the last five years of his reign, I think all but three months is spent in France. So to what extent he himself is in charge of what's going on in England, I very I much doubt that uh, – I, I would look at his brothers. He's got very capable brothers, especially John Duke of Bedford um, – I think if you look at these people, the, the whole court is really administering uh, uh, a, a very positive role in England. Um, is he a great individual beyond the martial uh, legacy of the, the warrior king? I'm not sure he was.
6: So would you actually have liked Henry king? Oh, God,
4: no. I've, I've, I have never come across anybody in, in history I dislike as much. And I started off writing the book because I liked his grandfather, uh, great-grandfather so much. Edward III, and I warmed to Edward III's reputation and his extraordinary things that he did. And I really wanted to see the the great-grandson recapturing this great kingship, and I was appalled because, of course, we all grow up believing Henry V is this charming, dashing warrior hero. And when I looked at him, I have never come across... I I have to say, I've never come across anybody who surprised me quite as much as how much I disliked this cold-hearted, ruthless killer.
6: Why, why did he feel a need to demonstrate that he was divinely favoured? What was, what was going on there? Ah, uh, fascinating question. Um,
4: his entire life had been concerned with his position in relation to the monarchy and therefore his relationship with God and whether he and his dynasty would be favoured by God as the kings of England. At the time of his birth... His father had every reason to believe that one day he might inherit the throne because he was the male heir of Edward III if Richard II died without any uh, uh, children. So he had reason to believe as he was growing up that he might inherit the throne. Then his father is ousted by Richard II. He loses everything and he finds his father in exile and himself a virtual prisoner at Richard II's court. Then his father comes back to England, becomes king, and then he has uh, all these questions about his father's right ...to rule the country. There are so many rebellions, attempts to kill Henry IV... ...that Henry V must have looked throughout his childhood... ...at his position as being very precarious... ...and he must have wanted to take charge of the situation... ...and do something about it. Now his father at uh, the Battle of Shrewsbury... ...at which Henry V himself was present... ...looked at victory over his enemies... ...as a sign of, that God favoured the Lancastrians... Uh, ...Henry IV and Henry V often... ...to be kings of England... Now, that principle, God will favor you through war, is one that Henry V continued himself uh, as prince in his wars against Glendower in 1405. For example, he won a battle and told all his men to give thanks to God for the victory, not to him. Uh, and he continues this in France. It is a divine mission he feels himself uh, 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 tied to if he can prove himself victorious in war his enemies are progressively weakened um, uh, because god is clearly on his side and it, it, it sets this this martial uh sets the scene for this martial reign which is obviously ex- terribly destructive in france but it does deliver peace in england
6: uh, is, the, is there a danger here um ian in um, in, in applying modern values and judgments to the man. I mean, he, he lived in a time, as you say, when warfare was was, was endemic, I suppose, in, in some respects, and when people had a, a very different view of religion to what we do today. So so did, did people of his time see him in the same sort of light as you're seeing him now?
4: Well, some did. Those who benefited from his reign and his victories obviously were far more um, tolerant of his uh, 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 well, killing in France. I mean, there are uh, Burgundian chroniclers and French chroniclers who lament the, the terrible things that he did at Halfler and, uh, and in later sieges and uh, in the um, Battle of Agincourt, example, for example. Um, so there are, there are contemporaries who look at him as being ruthless Merciless, and they do say these things, especially the, the the writers on the continent. They do say these things at the time. So to say that, oh, we ought to uh, uh, allow him all the benefits of the doubt because it was a martial time. I think is a uh, it, it is basically saying we're going to take the English line because the English were victorious. Um, if you want to be objective about the war. He did restart the war. There was no need to do so. And a lot of people, innocent people, died as a result in order to, for him to prove himself in God's eyes. So I don't think we're applying modern values in that sense. If we want to be fair, we will say that there are those in England who looked, overlooked all the atrocities and the breaking of the chivalric code as being simply the marks of uh, a, a divinely inspired leader who knew when, to break, when he could break the law and when all those chivalric codes and when he shouldn't. On the religious side, well, we have to be very sensitive to the extreme degree of religiosity there is at the English court, and especially in Henry himself. I mean, we're talking about a time when to be normally religious uh, is fanatic by our standards today, and Henry was fanatic by the standards of the time. Um, He is obsessed with religion. So uh, it's one of the things in the book that I I, I looked into and thought about in great depth, and therefore I, I do... Uh, pay attention—a lot of attention—to the, the the spiritual side of his uh, court and his activities.
6: Okay. Now, finally, does it worry you at all to um, to uh, I suppose you're not attacking, but but to to reconsider the the reign of a, a king who who we would normally see as a great man, and, and suggest that perhaps he wasn't as great as all that.
4: It doesn't worry me at all. No, I'm I'm far more worried about uh, what people actually think of the structure. I mean, the the form of the book is totally experimental. I don't think anybody's written a a book which is practically a you know, quarter of a million words long about a single year in a medieval man's life and tried to track every single day what was happening in him and his to him and uh, his uh, companions. I, I I think that my um I. I Imagine a number of people will like what I've written about Henry V because it does deflate uh, an overpraised uh, warrior king. I do think that the role he has in the modern world is is misplaced. There are there are advantages from to, to there are advantages to reconsidering him, but what I really want to know is what people make of the structure in the book. I mean, ah. I I really want to know what people think of that because it's an experiment in form and the the results of this are, are, are going to be very interesting because it sets aside a lot of the criticisms people have made in the past about the way history is written, how historians select their evidence and arrange their evidence to suit their own arguments, things like that. Now, I have not selected my evidence. I've stuck everything in I possibly can find and I have arranged it according to a calendar. Now, if that is readable, we're getting close to something which is Realistic history in the sense of it's real time and real progression and true narrative. And if that comes off, then um, I I don't care if people hate me for for disliking Henry V because I'll have achieved something.
1: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel History historyextra
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
5: Ian Mortimer's feature, Henry V, Cruel King, is in the October issue of BBC History magazine, and Henry V is pictured on the cover. Ian Mortimer's book, 1415, Henry's Year of Glory, has just been published by Random House.
3: And now for our next interview. In the current issue of the magazine, historian Professor Amanda Vickery looks at how people kept their homes secure from burglars and witches in the past. She's currently presenting a major new 30-part social history series on BBC Radio 4 called A History of Private Life. This has come about thanks to funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Coming up now, we've Professor Vickery talking about the period of history that she covers for her series. This is an extract from an interview that she recorded for the AHRC to mark the start of the series.
0: At the heart of the uh, research that I've done... Um, is the, is the material for my book, which is called Behind Closed Doors, which is published by Yale. But the radio series is much broader than the book. The book covers, you know, what historians call the Long Eighteenth Century. The radio series covers, you know, the period from the, the Tudor mansion to the nineteen sixties bedsit. Um, so, I for the earlier period, for the seventeenth the that really the 17th and the 18th centuries I talk about some of the deep structures of home, fundamental ideas of privacy, refuge the home as a place of prayer home as a place of ritual and hierarchy then moving into the 18th century um, I talk about the home as a public stage and a place of taste and then uh, as enlightenment ideas are becoming current the home as a stage for the performance of Enlightened Marriage. So when the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment are circling, men, uh, for the modern up-to-date, well-read man, masculinity is no longer best expressed through oppressing your wife, but is by having her as a kind of uh, honourable partner and hostess Mm. and uh, giving her her due in the drawing room. And so she's a trophy, really. You know, and that's um, something which enforces a man's kind of modern, up-to-date masculinity to have a very polished, well-behaved, well-educated wife. Um, then moving into the nineteenth century, um, one—I was trying to think of ways to capture the Victorian home in a in a new way, in a way that would be kind of arresting for listeners, because I think everybody has a vision of the Victorian home, and you know, it, it feels quite well-known territory. So. One of the programmes that I'm most satisfied with is on uh, the garden indoors and how the Victorians, um, even though their houses were incredibly polluted, you know, gas, gas lit, coal fired, they had this absolute obsession with bringing greenery indoors. So, I mean, one way to do that is to have, you know, the old cast iron plant, the aspidistra, which can survive anything. That You know, that's why the indestructible aspidistra becomes such a symbol of working class respectability. You know, it will survive. But the great thing that the Victorians discover is the Wardian case, the sealed glass case, in which plants can um, they, uh, absorb, reabsorb the moisture, they expire. So um, therefore, you know, seeds can germinate within them. So they grow, with the, you know, they have ferns inside them, it's absolute fern mania. And the fern symbolises, you know, the, sort of, the, roma- the romance of nature for the Victorians. Also, another Victorian obsession is the aquarium. And, and again, the fern, the fernery and the aquarium are about creating a kind of moral home because um, there 's lots of very active churchmen who support aquarium because it 's a way of celebrating the variety and wonder of god 's creation so the fernery and the aquarium were a way for me to get at some of these things which we think we know about the Victorians, mm. but in an entirely novel mm. way and then we move on to the twentieth century to the rise of the suburb, the attack on the suburbs, uh, the imperial bungalow. That are, I'm very happy with the programme we made on uh, the empire abroad. And uh, the British in India or the Anglo-Indians, as they call themselves. And, you know, the great contrast, their homes there, the bungalow made with these cluttered, woomy Victorian houses. Um, but particularly how they just couldn't, were amazed by a house really where there was no defensible threshold. Uh and so obviously, they have great their visceral fears of a treacherous, possibly mutinous, possibly murderous population, but they're also incredibly scared of nature as well because they think they just feel the reptiles are coming in all the time, and so in these they don't knock at the door, you know they don't respect the threshold of the englishman's castle and then finally, we end with the flat and the bedsit but and the English you know continuing. Uh, dislike of of really kind of flats and lodgings and the continued desire for uh, a separate probably suburban home
3: of one's own and that was amanda vickery talking about her radio 4 series a history of private life which came about thanks to funding from the arts and humanities research council the Council aims to raise the profile of arts and humanities research and to be an effective advocate for its social, cultural and economic significance. You can hear a longer interview with Amanda on their website at www.ahrc.ac.uk. Amanda's series starts on the 28th September and continues for six weeks. The programmes are broadcast Monday to Friday at 3.45pm. Or you can listen again on
5: bbc.co.uk forward slash iPlayer. As promised earlier, here's how you can get hold of a copy of BBC History magazine. You can, of course, buy it from all good news agents, or even better, you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available, whether you're in the UK or overseas, and you'll find details of all of this on our website.
3: Now, whether or not you buy a copy of the magazine, we do hope you'll enjoy our website, which we've recently relaunched. Um, there's lots of free content on there. Rob, can you give us five examples of things you can do on our website?
5: OK, well, you can take our new weekly historical quiz, which is released every Friday. You can download any of our podcasts going back to June 2007. You can read features both in the magazine and unique web-only ones. You can look through book reviews from the past few months and comment on the books. And you can search your favourite articles in the magazine on our index.
3: That's all available on the website. um, And if you do want to sign up to our weekly newsletter, it will prompt you to take the quiz on Friday afternoons. That's all for now. The website is at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Thank you for listening. And there'll be another BBC History Magazine podcast in a couple of weeks.